Right, good morning. Uh, would you please turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 17. We'll be looking at chapter 17 to 22 this morning. And if you're here and you're a parent, I hope you received our disclaimer message yesterday. Uh, some of the content in these chapters is what can be called mature and sensitive in nature. And I'm going to try my best uh, to keep things at a PG level of rating. Uh, but either way, as a parent, I, I want you to be listening intently because you may need to have, actually you probably will have to have a, a few conversations, especially with your younger children uh, after today. So please be aware of that. Leviticus chapter 17 to 22. Uh, would you join me in praying one more time? Holy God, would you show us your holiness and display to us the glory of your son Jesus through your word, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. My chief enjoyment and the sole employment throughout life has been scientific work. From this work, I am never idle, as it is the only thing which makes my life endurable to me. So wrote one famous gentleman, in his autobiography concerning his devotion to science. What were the effects of this passion and devotion to science in his life? Well, near the end of his life, this man wrote, my mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of facts. This is a loss of happiness. I have become a withered leaf for every subject except science. We're going to look at the effects of a different kind of devotion in another man's life, contemporary to this individual, somewhat contemporary. Uh, at the age of 19, this other man wrote this. He says, Resolved to cast my soul on the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust and confide in Him, and consecrate myself wholly to Him. What were the results of his devotion in his life? Well, later in his life, he writes this. It brought an inexpressible purity, brightness, peacefulness, and ravishment to the soul. In other words, it made the soul like a field or garden. Now, these two men, if you haven't realized it already, are Charles Darwin, the famous scientist, and Jonathan Edwards, who is known arguably as America's greatest pastor theologian. Darwin, the renowned scientist and pioneer of evolutionary theory, ended his life feeling like a grinding machine and like a withered leaf. And Edwards, the great theologian, ended his life with great joy like a garden. One, a withered leaf, the other, a garden. And the contrast between Darwin and Edwards has been noted by one author to illustrate a very important spiritual principle. And it is this. We become like what we worship. The object of our devotion affects our direction, for better or for worse. Or as one author says, what you revere, you will resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. We, we see this principle all around us, don't we? We see this with sports teams, for instance. And people who are fanatics or big fans of sports teams, they end up painting themselves in the color of their team. Or you think about people who are obsessed with physical appearance. And then they begin to look like they're obsessed with physical appearance. Well, the question for us is, do our lives reflect our devotion? When people around you look at your life, what would they say is the object of your worship? And today's passage, friends, challenges us with this call. That we must be holy because the Lord our God is holy. 
Brothers and sisters, these chapters in Leviticus call us to wholehearted devotion to our holy God and distinction from the world. As people who've been saved by and belong to the Holy One, as those who worship the Holy One, our lives must be characterized by His holiness. Or as one pastor put it, salvation by Christ should produce stunning holiness in Christ. And we're going to look at three ways that these laws in Leviticus chapters 17 to 22 challenge us concerning holiness. First, we must embrace our call to holiness. Embrace our call to holiness. Look at chapter 18, verses 1 to 5. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes, my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So this morning we are reaching a turning point in the book of Leviticus. We move from the first half of the book, which mainly dealt with uh, laws for rituals and, and worship in the tabernacle, to the second half of the book, which deals with laws for ethics and worship and holiness in all of life. Throughout these chapters, you will see one phrase that is repeated over and over again with slightly different variations, and it goes on and on through these chapters like a constant drumbeat. And that phrase is, I am the Lord your God. Right there, look at chapter 18, verse 2 that we just saw. I am the Lord your God. And again in verse 4, I am the Lord your God. And again in verse 5, I am the Lord. And when we read our Bibles in the Old Testament and we see the Lord speaking this way as He gives us His name, all caps, capital L, O-R-D, that doesn't just refer to God saying, I am the Lord and Master, although that is implied, of course, but really the all capitals L-O-R-D in your English Bibles refers to the personal name of God, is that the Lord has revealed Himself, has given us His personal name, and in Hebrew we often know as Yahweh, and the, the Jews would uh, treat this name so sacredly that they wouldn't even write it down in, in its completeness. And that has been transferred into our English Bibles with the all caps, Lord. God is revealing His personal name here. And in repeating this phrase over and over again, I am the Lord your God, the Lord is giving His people a reminder of who He is and what He has done. He is the Lord, the God of creation, the one who spoke and created all things. He is the one who appeared to Moses in the burning bush and revealed his name to his people. He is the one who brought his people out of Egypt, who redeemed them, saved them with mighty acts and has brought them to himself. This is the Lord who is calling his people to holiness. And this Lord gives his people the reason that they are called to holiness. They are His people, the people who worship the Holy God. Because they are His people, the Lord calls them to be holy and reflect His holy character. Again, notice right at the center of these chapters, chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. God's people must reflect the character of their God. Their holiness reflects the holiness of their Redeemer, their Lord. All of life is to be an imitation of God's holy character. And holiness is a concept really that has been kind of lost in our day, especially among evangelicals. We don't speak of the holiness of God, and we don't think about our own holiness we emphasize the love of God and the grace of God, which are good, but we've forgotten His holiness. 
The famous evangelical theologian David Wells says this, he says, It is this God, majestic and holy in his being, this God whose love knows no bounds because his holiness knows no limits, who has disappeared from the modern evangelical world. We seek happiness, not righteousness. We want to be fulfilled, not filled. We are interested in satisfaction, not a holy dissatisfaction with all that is wrong. Wells is right. It's no doubt that people don't understand our call to holy living when we don't recognize the holy majesty of our God. We must be holy because He, the one we worship, is holy. And yet, even in God's call to be holy, the text is clear that the holiness of God's people is a loving response to God's grace and mercy. You know, since this section is filled with laws, we might be tempted to think that holiness is somehow some kind of a call to formal duty. Holiness involves a a list of do's and don'ts by which people, you know, you keep this list of do's and don'ts and you somehow earn favor before God. That idea is absolutely incorrect. No, the call to holiness is the result of what God has already done for His people. Remember, these chapters come after the Exodus after God has already saved His people and brought them to Himself, after He has provided the way for their sins to be forgiven and atoned for, after the Day of Atonement. Holiness, biblically, is always a response to God's saving grace. So what do we mean by holiness? Biblically, holiness has two aspects. First, holiness means To be wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly devoted. God is holy because He is wholly devoted to Himself, to His own glory, to His own perfect righteous character and His perfect purposes in all of history. God is devoted to Himself as the moral standard of this universe. And so we, as His people, must be devoted to Him and His purposes and His glory. The second aspect of holiness follows from the first. Because we are wholly devoted to God, we must be distinct and separate from the world. Again, we see this in God Himself. God is separate from all that is impure and that does not conform to His purity and His character. He is distinct from creation because He is the Creator. And as He calls us into a holy relationship with Him, our holiness means that we are devoted to God and His truth, and we are separated from everything that does not conform to God's standards. We are distinct from the world around us. You see this these two ideas very clearly, chapter 20, verse 26, the Lord says, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So on the one hand, you see, He separates them from the peoples. On the other hand, to be His, to belong to Him. Seven times in these chapters, from chapter 17 to 22, we'll see God say again and again, tell Israel that they must be distinct from the other nations. Like the portion that we read from chapter 18, they must not walk as the nations around them walk, nor do what those nations do. Instead, they must walk as the Lord calls them to walk. And brothers and sisters, it's the same for us. Lest you think that this call to to holiness was only for the nation of Israel, this exact same call to holiness is repeated in the New Testament for us as New Covenant Christians. Think of 1 Peter 2, verses 14 and following. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And Peter is quoting Leviticus there. We must be holy. We must keep our lives distinct from the world. We must be devoted, wholly devoted to the Lord, our holy God, in every area of life. And so may I ask you this morning, may I speak to us as a church, what does your life, what do our lives, what does our church community look like in comparison to the world and the nations around us? 
Does your life look the same as theirs? Do we value the same things that they value? Do we live in devotion to the same things that they devote themselves to? Or do our lives reflect a devotion to someone else? If someone was to look at your browsing history, your internet browsing history, or more importantly, pick up your smartphone, maybe look through all your WhatsApp messages, maybe all of those played on the screen here this morning, what would that reveal about the object of your devotion? What are you devoted to the most? Let's go one step deeper. Not just what's on your smartphone, but what's in your heart. Your deepest thoughts, your deepest feelings, affections, your dreams, your ambitions. If all of those deep desires were revealed and played on a screen for all to see, I want to ask the question, is God and His glory in the picture? Is the glory of God your primary pursuit? Or just like the nations around us, is it financial security, earning more money? For teens, maybe earning more friends and popularity. Parents want to speak to you. What are your deepest goals? Is it successful kids? Successful by what standards? What shapes our values? What is it that we desire most? Is it a better job, a better career, a better life? Maybe all good things, but not good if they absorb all our energies and take the place in our hearts that only the Lord deserves. Let's search our heart this morning. We must embrace our call to holiness, to distinction and separation from the world and devotion to our holy Lord. Not only do these chapters challenge us to embrace our call to holiness, these chapters also challenge us to prioritize our pursuit of holiness. We must prioritize our pursuit of holiness. And as we look at these laws, they emphasize three spheres of life in which we must pursue practical holiness. Right? Three spheres of life. The first is we must pursue holiness in our worship, in our worship. Remember, as the people of God, all of life is to revolve around worshiping God. Right worship leads to right living. And so as these laws begin in chapter 17, we see regulations for worship in sacrifices. The people of Israel were not allowed to sacrifice animals anywhere they want. You couldn't go make a sacrifice and slaughter an animal out in the field, out in the forest, or, you know, in Israelite, ancient Israelite backyard. I'm going to sacrifice this animal and have a little backyard barbecue. No, not allowed. Sacrificial slaughter had to be performed in the proper way at the proper place, which was the tabernacle. That was the only place you could offer sacrifice. And if you look at verse 7 of chapter 17, you see the rationale for this instruction. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And what the Lord is doing here is He is guarding His people's worship from corruption. You see, the nations around Israel, the, the land that they were going to inhabit, the land of Canaan, uh, the peoples of these lands offered sacrifices to false gods, to goat demons and other idols. And the temptation to do these kind of sacrifices, to worship these false gods, was always present as a snare to trap Israel. When things were going hard, instead of having faith and relying on the one true God, they were tempted to worship these other gods. And by saying you must only sacrifice at the tabernacle, God is guarding them from trying to offer their own sacrifices in their own way, in their own place. No, worship must be regulated by God's instruction and God's word. No sacrifices to other gods, and certainly not to goat demons. In the rest of chapter 17, we'll see instructions about the proper use of blood. The people were to respect the sanctity of blood. It was sacred. What happens when you bleed and pour out blood, if you keep on bleeding, you die. And God had given blood to be used by the people of Israel to make atonement, to offer blood sacrifice. 
because blood represents that an animal's life has been poured out in death and therefore it pays the penalty for sin and makes atonement. So they were not to treat blood casually. They were not allowed to eat blood or consume it. No blood pudding or drinking blood. That was not allowed. And the same way if they were hunting animals in the wild, of course, with, with a wild animal, you can't exactly chase a deer all the way to the tabernacle and slaughter it there. So if you slaughtered a deer or something like this in the wild, you were to pour out its blood on the ground. Not allowed to consume it. In chapter 20, we see another ban, again, against the worship of a detestable god named Molech. And they're commanded not to offer sacrifice to Molech because people would offer to Molech child sacrifice. Chapter 20, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. This was strictly forbidden, any form of human sacrifice of putting children to death on the altar of this false and evil God. Now, we don't offer animal sacrifices today, right? All of these sacrifices have been fulfilled by the once-for-all perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Yet these principles are very important for us. Because as New Covenant Christians, we are still commanded to offer a certain type of sacrifice as part of our worship. Think of Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We are to present our lives, present ourselves, consecrate ourselves to worship God. We present our bodies as a living sacrifice when we gather for corporate worship, and then in all of life as we live for the glory of God. And as we fulfill his commands, we are to live as a living sacrifice. We may not be tempted to go offer sacrifices to false idols and to goat demons. I don't think anyone here is tempted to offer a sacrifice to goat demons. But aren't there other idols that draw our worship away from Christ? As one pastor famously said, the human heart is an idol factory. It may not be a goat demon in the wilderness that woos your heart away from God. It might be the seductive call of the God of this world, which is mammon, which is materialism, and worldly success to which you give yourself. We may not sacrifice our children to a false god named Molech, putting them to death on his altars, but how often have we placed our children on the altars of our own ambitions, our own worldly desires, our own craving for success and respect, our own ideas of what we want our children to do rather than raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. God have mercy on us. What about your life, friends? Where are you taking what ought to belong to the Lord alone and unfaithfully giving this to someone or something else. May the Holy Spirit search our hearts this morning. So their worship had to be holy with regard to sacrifice, but also had to be holy in regard to spirituality. Throughout these chapters, we see an emphasis on being careful to avoid the spiritualism, the superstition, the occultism of the pagan nations. So, for example, Leviticus 19, verses 26 to 31. You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. And these warnings were given because there was a constant temptation for the people of Israel to seek out these things to help them in times of desperation and need. And I want to ask you, who do you turn to? Where do you turn for help in your time of need? 
Anyone here maybe curious with astrology? Maybe check the weekly horoscope. Oh, no harm in that. You know, I'll just check what, 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 whether it's going to be a good week or a good month. Maybe thinking that way. Or maybe playing around with birdstones or precious stones or all of those funny things. Maybe you don't do that. Maybe your temptation comes a different way. Maybe you're seeking help from Mary or some patron saint. Or maybe as is common in, in some cultures, you're even tempted to go to witch doctors or mediums. Maybe you're being seduced away by the modern day witch doctors. The witch doctors who pose as Christian preachers. The false teachers of the prosperity gospel. The self-help gurus and so-called prophets who promise you a breakthrough. If you'll just give them enough money. What are the superstitious practices that have crept into your life? You might say, oh, pastor, I'm, I'm a Christian. I don't do any of that stuff. Well, maybe you don't. Maybe you form another, follow another form of worldly spirituality. The kind of spirituality that is a functional atheism. May not, see, may not be seeking after omens and fortune tellers. And all of those things, but just following a kind of practical atheism of the world where we live in self-reliance, live as if God doesn't exist, it's all self-help, not seeking God's grace, not seeking His help for our needs, just going along, meandering through life on our own. You know, one way to continue pursuing holiness in worship as a church would be to prioritize our corporate prayer gathering this week, where we come to the Lord to seek help, we're showing our reliance on Him rather than ourselves or any other source. How's your prayer life doing, dear Christian? I just want to add one side note here. Sometimes we, get, we often get questions about this as pastors. Sometimes Christians wonder about getting tattoos and whether that's allowed or not because Leviticus 19 uh, forbids that. I just want to clarify that the point there was not the issue of getting tattoos, but doing things that were a part of pagan worship and spirituality. In the ancient world, in these cultures, tattoos were used as part of worshipping the false gods. So that's not the case in most cultures today. In some of your cultures, that may be the case, in which case it would be wise not to get a tattoo. But that's not exactly applicable. Getting a tattoo by itself is not wrong. Doing it as part of pagan worship is wrong. So Israel's worship was to be holy in the area of sacrifice and spirituality. And then we see two entire chapters devoted to the holiness of Israel's priests, chapters 21 and 22. Again, if you remember, as we've studied through Leviticus, the priests were the mediators between God and the people. They represent God to the people. They represent the people to God. These men's life, lives were to be carefully guarded. The priests had a higher standard of holiness, of consecration, than the general population. And we no longer have Levitical priests leading God's people today. Uh, the requirements of Levitical priesthood don't apply today. I certainly don't meet the requirements of Levitical priests that you see in chapters 21 and 22. But it's still a good word for us concerning leadership in the church. Leaders throughout scripture are held to a higher standard of faithful character and godliness than the average person. You ought to, dear ECC, I want to say to you, you ought to expect a measure of godliness of humility and repentance and exemplary holiness in the lives of your elders. And you should hold us accountable to this, including me. At the same time, the new covenant, we believe that God has called all of us to be priests. All of us are a royal priesthood, those who believe in Christ. We are to be wholly devoted to the Lord. And so that's how our lives ought to look. Lives of priestly service to God, prioritizing the corporate gathering for worship and prioritizing godliness in all of life. So God's people must pursue holiness in worship. That's the first sphere in which we are to pursue holiness. The second sphere in these chapters in which we must pursue holiness is sexuality. We must pursue holiness in sexuality. All of chapter 18 of Leviticus deals with holiness in the sexual realm. The Lord, the God who created sex and sexuality is the one who draws boundaries for how sex should function. Sex is powerful. 
It's a powerful thing. And like nuclear power, it can work one way or the other. Nuclear power, think about it, in the right context, with the right constraints in, in, the, in its proper place, is magnificent and greatly beneficial. It can be used to power entire nations. And yet that same nuclear power, when it is not contained in its proper place and let loose, can be devastating and destructive and all-consuming. It's the same with sex. God has created sex to be enjoyed in a covenant bond between a man and a woman who are committed to one another for life. And again, before giving these laws governing sexuality, the beginning of chapter 18, which we read earlier, God reminds His people of who He is and who they are. They are to be distinct from the world. All of the sexual perversions that we see in chapter 18 were those that were practiced in the nations surrounding Israel, practiced in Egypt, practiced in Canaan, and they were often associated with the worship of false gods. God tells His people they must be distinct. As one scholar says, the vocation of Israel was to live a different sort of life in which all people were treated with respect rather than used merely as objects to gratify uncontrolled sexual lust. So as you go through chapter 18, you'll see God outlaw various kinds of illicit unions. And in the first several verses from verses 6 to 19, you'll see God outlaw marriage and sexual relations between close relatives. These are what you might think of as incest or incestuous relationships. And many different kinds of incestuous relationships are specified. Should be fairly uncontroversial uh, today. Uh, one scholar summarizes all of these uh, in a simple sentence, I'll read that to you. A man may not marry any woman who is a close blood relation or any woman who has become a close rel relative through a previous marriage to one of the man's close blood relations. So no marriage or sexual union among close relatives. In verse 19, there is a ban on sexual relations during a woman's monthly period. This one is related to the purity laws that we saw back in Leviticus 15 a few weeks ago. And then in verses 20 to 23, there are four stern prohibitions. And three of these are completely uncontroversial. One is particularly controversial today, so we'll look at that one last, go a little out of order here. Verse 20 outlaws adultery. You shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. That should be uncontroversial. This is one of the Ten Commandments. God outlaws adultery. God, like I said, has created sex to be enjoyed between a man and a woman within the covenant bond of marriage and not outside of it. And adulterous relationships are a violation of God's holy law. Verse 21 once again condemns child sacrifices to this false and abominable God named Molech. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And it's ironic, isn't it, that this law against putting children to death before a false God is sandwiched here among the laws on sexuality. In our day and age, this is particularly ironic. Because perhaps the most grievous form of child sacrifice in the world today takes place through the sin of abortion. Where children who are made in God's image are butchered on the altar of personal freedom and sexual licentiousness. I just want to say, if you're here this morning, dear friend, and if you live with the dark stain of abortion in your past, there's grace and mercy. There is cleansing and forgiveness and redemption that is found in the blood of Christ for every stain of sin, for every sinner, including the sin of abortion. So that's verse 21. Verse 23, 
condemns the sin of bestiality, that is relations with animals. You shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Now again, this is uncontroversial. This is quite repugnant in modern society. But this was rampant and common in the nations around Israel, in the ancient world where Israel lived. It was closely associated with the worship of false gods. God reminds his people that this is a perversion because it violates the natural order, the natural created order. So three uncontroversial prohibitions. Verse 22 was uncontroversial for Israel. It was fairly uncontroversial for most of Christian history, but it is extremely controversial today, both in the world around us as well as among some so-called Christians. Verse 22 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. This ban on homosexual practice is repeated again in chapter 20, where it is listed as a capital crime incurring the death penalty in Israel. Chapter 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Homosexuality, homosexual relationships, according to the Bible, according to God's word, are sinful. Dear friends, the world, the internet, Hollywood, the movies... Disney, all seek to normalize homosexuality and even celebrate it. And even as the world dances in celebration, God's word calls it an abomination. And some so-called Christian teachers, I'm very sad to say, many false teachers twist the Bible, twist God's word, find ways to dance around what God's word plainly says. But friends, this is clear. Homosexuality is an abomination to God because it violates the created order and God's purposes for sexual union, which he created to be enjoyed between a man and a woman in the sacred covenant of marriage. You know, even if you Google, be careful. You'll find many, many false so-called Christian teachers on the internet who will twist and turn and find ways to escape what God's word clearly says. Beware. We can't escape the issue. And, and you know, you can't, it doesn't work to escape the issue as many do saying, oh, that's part of the Old Testament law. You know, it's not part of the new covenant. Just like animal sacrifices we don't do anymore, this doesn't apply anymore. No, this is very clear in the new, the New Testament clearly and repeatedly denounces homosexual activity as sinful and as among those acts which draw the wrath of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, and by implication, women who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Friends, these laws in Leviticus 18 guard family life and create a stable society. They cannot be simply ignored, shoved aside, or redefined in the name of modernity. They lead to destruction individually, personally, and in society as a whole. Perhaps you're here this morning... And you struggle, dear friend, with same-sex attraction. I want to speak to you and say, you are not outside the realm of God's overflowing mercy and grace, my friend. I want to be clear that there is a distinction between homosexual desires and homosexual practices. And I want to say it is possible to be free from slavery to your desires and your feelings. There is mercy and grace in the gospel of Christ. There is forgiveness of all sins, including homosexual behavior. And there is power in Jesus Christ to overcome sin and live in purity and in holiness before God. You know, if any of you have questions about this, we welcome you to come to us. I'd love to talk with you. If, if that's a sin that you struggle with, I'd love to have a conversation to you. Do come and, and speak with us.
We want to, want to find ways to help you. So that's the second area we must pursue holiness in the sphere of sexuality. The third sphere where we must pursue holiness is in community. We must pursue holiness in community. Throughout chapter 19, we see the call to holiness in community life. You see, holiness is not simply a private individual affair. It's very easy to say, ah, look, I'm so holy, I keep my life you know, good before God when you don't live with other people. And guess what? The problem is not them. The problem is you. Holiness involves relationships. Real holiness is seen in how you live with other people, especially within the community of God's people. That's what all of chapter 19 is about. In fact, the whole chapter is summarized in just one verse, one of Jesus' favorite verses in the Old Testament. comes from right here in Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And this means showing a kind of love towards others that puts their interests, their well-being their spiritual and material good on the same level or even above your own. Maybe we can start by, you know, you come to worship service and you booked your ticket, everything ahead of time, you got here early, and maybe some mornings we should begin to think, hey, you know what, this morning I'm going to give up my seat in the main hall and I'm going to go to the overflow to make room for that brother or sister who comes from far away by bus and is never able to sit in the main hall. Putting others' interests above our own. Caring for the needy. As you look through chapter 19, you'll see God's heart and emphasis on caring for the needy, on taking care of the poor, on looking after the vulnerable in society, putting the interests of others above yourself. Being committed to love one another sacrificially. By the way, this is the only reason, this is why we emphasize church membership. Not because we just want to have people's names on the list. No, we emphasize meaningful church membership because it is the first step in making a commitment to love others, to care for one another, to bear one another's burdens, to serve one another sacrificially, to do one another good. I want to highlight one particular aspect of love of neighbor that we see in this passage that I think is very pertinent for our church. This is in verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Loving your neighbor as yourself means you don't hate them secretly in your heart, or don't tell them when you're offended. I've seen this so often as a pastor. People get offended, they get offended with someone else. Then the course of action is, I'm never going to talk to them again. Or I gossip about them to others, or I complain about them to the pastor, or... I hold it in my heart deep within for years and years, sit on the opposite ends of the church or come to different service. That way I can avoid seeing them. Friend, if that's you, you need to go to your brother or your sister and reason frankly with them. God's word is speaking to you this morning. We must keep our community holy. A holy community is a loving community. Not loving in pretense or just in words, but genuine, committed, sacrificial love toward one another. So we've seen the call to holiness. We've seen three spheres of life in the pursuit of holiness. Before we move on, we need to address chapter 20. Chapter 20 lists the death penalty for several violations of holiness. God inflicts the death penalty on those who make certain transgressions. You might look at that and say, oh, that seems so harsh. Why would God command the death penalty in Israel for people who break His law in these ways? And I want to say you wouldn't think it was harsh if you understood the laws of the ancient world and the nations surrounding Israel. Those nations command the death penalty for the smallest casual crime. Steal an apple, you're dead. And they inflict the death penalty on those who are poorer and more vulnerable. And you could commit murder and just get off by paying a fine in those nations. In Israel, it's completely different. The punishment fits the crime. These laws place a value and a premium on the sanctity of human life and on the sanctity of the worship of God. 
God cared about the holiness of his people so much that certain serious transgressions and sins incurred the ultimate penalty. Because God cares about his people's holiness. And throughout the chapter, you also see another phrase repeated. If, if the death penalty was not enacted, we see uh, this phrase that a person would be cut off from his people. And that indicates they would fall into the hands of God, give them over to fall into the hands of God and to face God's wrath. He will deal with them. Now in the New Covenant, friends, we do not practice the death penalty. If you're here and maybe your first time at ECC, don't worry, you won't be put to death here for anything that you do. We are not a nation state, not a nationalistic kingdom like Israel was in the Old Testament. Nevertheless, we do practice a serious penalty. In fact, one that is even more serious than the death penalty in the form of church discipline and excommunication. In church discipline, we are saying to unrepentant sinners, those who claim to be a Christian but are walking in continuous unrepentant unholiness and sin, we're saying to them that God's name and His reputation must be guarded. You cannot take His name and, and live like a pagan. And we're saying that the holiness and purity and the witness of God's people is so important that we are going to put you out of God's community, put you out of the church, into the realm of Satan in this world to guard the holiness of the church. And that's vital according to God's word. So God gave his people his good laws of holiness for them to live, to reflect his holy character. And if you read the rest of the Bible, however you'll see that Israel miserably failed to keep God's law. The law's, law was good, but their hearts were not. You see, the people needed new hearts. And so do we. Because as we read these laws on holiness, as we examine our own hearts and lives in light of God's word, we realize in one sense that all of us fall short, don't we? All of us have failed to love our neighbor as ourself. All of us have failed, to one degree or the other, to live in sexual purity. If not in practice, then in our hearts and in our thoughts. Maybe some of you here this morning are enslaved to sexual sin digitally and committing adultery in the form of pornography. All of us have failed to live in wholehearted worship an unreserved devotion to Christ. We've made it all about us instead of all about Him. We fall short of His holy standard and the penalty that we deserve is death. But there's good news. There is good news for unholy sinners because not only does Leviticus call us to holiness, not only does Leviticus command us to pursue holiness, but Leviticus also calls us to remember the source of our holiness. Remember the source of our holiness. Remember what we said at the beginning today. You become like what you worship. What you revere you will resemble either for ruin or restoration. That's the reason the pagans around Israel and those nations lived the way that they did. Why did they commit all these sexual perversions and evil acts? Because that's what their gods were like. Their gods committed sexual perversions. These false gods would lie and steal and cheat. These false, god, uh, false gods exploited the vulnerable and lived in evil ways. That's why the people who worshipped these gods lived in those ways. But the one true God, the Lord, is not only holy, He's also a God who makes His people holy. And at the end of today's chapters, he says this in chapter 22, verses 31 and following. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. And you shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. That means I am the Lord who makes you holy. The holiness that God commands, God provides. And He provides it through blood. Remember we talked about the importance of blood to be used in blood sacrifice. 
Chapter 17 verse 11 says, The life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Blood was sacred because it was used in sacrifice representing a life poured out in death to pay the penalty for sins and to bring sinners into the sphere of holiness and fellowship with God. Friends, God has provided the perfect blood sacrifice for our sins. His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the holiest one who lived in perfect holiness in every way. Yet He died on the cross, poured out His blood for sinners. He took our death penalty. He was cut off and took upon himself the wrath of God that we deserve so that we might receive not only the forgiveness of sins but also that we might be given new hearts and be made holy. It's amazing. The holy, holy, holy God blazing in his purity, awesome in his majesty, the God of the universe shares his holiness with you, sanctifies us, conforms us to his character. And so dear non-Christian friend, this holy God calls you this morning to turn from your sin and come to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Doesn't matter what the sin, there is more grace in Christ then there is sin in you. There is grace to cleanse you and make you holy. Dear Christian brother or sister, he calls you once again to come and consecrate yourself afresh to a life of wholehearted devotion to your holy Savior. We become what we worship. May we become like him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our holy Savior Jesus. Grow us in our love for him and make us holy as you are holy. By your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.